I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Many technologies that we use today are the product of decades of research. Christine Peterson, co-founder of the Foresight Institute and CEO at a stealth company, is researching technologies that are of fundamental importance to the human future. One of them is nanotechnology. Christine explained what nanotechnology is and the challenges it can tackle in renewable energy, improving health and longevity, supplying clean water, among others. We also talked about the misuses of nanotechnology and important things to have in place to prevent them. In 1998, Christine coined the term open source. She explained how that came to be and the impact it had in the software industry. This show is brought to you by Sudoshirt, an online store featuring apparel designed by developers for developers. Sudoshirt features subtle designs to show your love for technology. Check it out by going to sudoshirt.com. That's S-U-D-O shirt.com. Thank you. Christine Peterson, co-founder of the Foresight Institute and CEO at a stealth company, is joining us today. Christine, welcome to the show. Thank you, Adina. Today, we're going to talk about nanotechnology research at the Foresight Institute and also open source software. First, I want to begin with the Foresight Institute, which was founded over 30 years ago and is researching technologies that are of fundamental importance to the human future. Can you give some background on the Foresight Institute? Yes, Foresight was founded in 1986. Uh, the founders, um, of which I was one, were primarily looking at nanotechnology at that time, although Foresight's charter does extend to other technologies. But at the time of the founding, we were focused on nanotechnology. What our goal was and continues to be today is to ex try to accelerate the benefits to humanity of nanotechnology, both humanity and the biosphere, I should mention, and try to head off any downsides and reduce any risks that could potentially arrive with nanotechnology. So that was our goal in 1986, and that remains part of our goal today. So that was the origination. Since then, we continue that work Uh, today, we've also added some additional interest areas. One of them is longevity, human longevity, and another is artificial intelligence. Yes, when I was reading about the Foresight Institute, I came across what you just mentioned, particularly under the nanotechnology pillar. There are these nanotechnology challenges, and the ones I saw were providing renewable clean energy longevity, which you just mentioned, supply clean water globally, healing and preserving the environment, making information technology available to all, and enabling space development. I wanted to hear from you some of the ways in which nanotechnology can help in each of these challenges. For example, with providing renewable and clean energy. Right. As a matter of fact, we are having a workshop this spring on that topic. So if any of your listeners are interested in applying to attend that workshop, it's in um, late April, they can sign up on our website and uh, possibly email me for the application. It's already gone out, but I can get that link to you. 
So how will nanotechnology technically do this? Well, there are a bunch of ways that nanotechnology can help with clean energy in particular, and this is something that most people don't realize, which is one of the easiest ways, one of the biggest wins in terms of energy is energy conservation. It's not as sexy in terms of how it sounds compared to clean energy, but if you want to actually heal the biosphere, one of the quickest ways to get big gains in energy is to reduce the use of it. So we don't even have to produce clean energy. We simply reduce our use of energy. And that is a huge area for nanotechnology to make a difference in a couple of ways. For example, one is using nanotech, we will be able to build our products out of very strong but very lightweight materials. So what this means is that instead of our cars weighing so much as they do today, and it takes so much fuel to move these things around, whether it's gasoline or if we're powering them with, with electricity, if we could still have the same safety level on our vehicles but greatly reduce the weight of them, that would hugely reduce the amount of energy it takes to move these vehicles around. So that's an obvious and easy win that nanotech can help with. Another one, which is kind of interesting, is right now we have a lot of water pollution. And as you mentioned, another of our goals is clean water. Obviously, we all want clean water, both for human consumption and also in the environment. We don't want wastewater going out into the environment and messing up the biosphere. So another way that nanotech can help starting pretty much right now is through very, very high quality and increasingly low cost water purification, where you take a stream of water, no matter what is wrong with it, whether it's got toxic chemicals in it, in the groundwater, because there was an industry there before that used toxic chemicals, or if we need to produce uh, drinking water from seawater. In all of those cases, what you want to do is you want to filter this water to a very, very high degree of purity. And so that's an area of filtration. Again, it's kind of a boring word. Um, I think your listeners, though, because they tend to be so technical, will understand that just because it's a boring word doesn't mean that the environmental benefits are boring. Sometimes you get your biggest wins from something that, gee, it, it doesn't sound very sexy, it doesn't sound exciting, but the impact can be huge. So those are some of the areas that we are looking at at Foresight and trying to promote. These are beneficial applications. I want to understand a little bit more the role of nanotechnology. Earlier you mentioned some of the ways in which nanotechnology can help in these areas is by building lightweight materials or high-quality and low-cost water purification. What are some of the core properties of nanotechnology? You can think of nanotechnology as having three stages. At least that's how I think about it. The first stage, which is where we are now, is the stage of nanomaterials. This is just simply, it's a more advanced form of material science. So you're producing materials that are designed at the nanoscale, where nanoscale means up to about 100 nanometers in terms of dimension. So those materials are really different and they have different properties than macroscale materials. 
So that's the first stage. The second stage would be nano devices. Now we're starting to do a little more interesting things. For example, these nanotech filtration devices that I mentioned. These are, they're only one molecule thick. There is no other way to do filtration with such high precision and low cost as using a one molecule thick membrane. This is new, it's never been done before, and with nanotechnology you can do it. And this is just starting now. It's being done in the lab, this filtration. Uh, it's being scaled up as I speak to doing uh, large scale water filtration here in California, primarily for agriculture, I think it's starting. So that's nano devices. And then the third stage, which is the one where you get the, the biggest payoffs, environmentally at least, is nanosystems. Now, with nanosystems, you don't just have a material or a device. You have multiple devices and different kinds of materials which are all integrated together to do a job. That might produce a nanoscale computer. It might produce a nanoscale medical device that would be able to be put into the body and carry out complex tasks. So now we're getting into the realm where it starts to sound kind of science fiction-y, but my attitude toward that is, yeah, you know, if you look at the future of technology, that's what it looks like. It looks like science fiction. And it continues to look like science fiction right up until the time that it arrives, and then suddenly people go, oh, okay, this is normal. So those are the three stages, materials, devices, and then, uh, then eventually advanced systems. And when we get to these advanced systems, it's not just down at the nanoscale up to 100 nanometers as nanomaterials are defined. Our goal is to build these systems with atomic scale precision, with every molecule in a designed location, in the devices and in the products if necessary. So some of the products of these systems, we're going to want molecular scale precision in these products. For example, ones that go into the human body. You want those to be very highly designed. So those are three stages, and I think that's sort of a helpful framework in kind of grappling with this space because word nanotechnology is used for such a wide variety of things now. You really need to parse it out and say, all right, here's how these different stages come along, here's where we are now, here's where we're going. And if you can do that, then the space starts to make a whole lot more sense. And you mentioned that currently a lot of the work is being done in the materials and also the devices stages, right? Yes, I would say most of the people who are currently working on this think of themselves as doing material science. The ones who are right at the very cutting edge think of themselves as beginning to work on molecular machines. And that is starting to move more into the advanced device phase or looking toward the system phase eventually. But still, most people who do this, they, if you ask them, what are you doing? They might say, I'm doing advanced material science. When you were talking about stage number three, which is nanosystems, you mentioned that eventually we're going to want to have like a nanoscale computer and something with molecular scale precision, for example, something that can go into the human body. What is an application where this would be useful to have something go in the human body at such a small scale? Well, a couple that have come to people's minds would be to send something in that would be able to clean out the plaque inside arteries. This is part of heart disease. So basically these, these arteries get clogged up with this plaque and it breaks loose and bad things happen. So what we'd like to do is go in there and do molecular scale repairs 
both removing the plaque and then repairing the wall of these blood vessels so that it becomes a healthy blood vessel again. So that's one application. Another obvious application is extremely well-targeted cancer treatments where you would send these things in, they'd be programmed to identify cancer cells and take them apart or disable them somehow, basically kill the cancer cells and not hurt a single healthy cell. Right now, we all know when you have chemotherapy, many healthy cells are killed as well. That's why your hair falls out. So chemotherapy is very crude now. Now they're getting better, and that's great. But the goal would be to have something that's so well-targeted that no healthy cells are damaged. One can also imagine more ambitiously saying, well, some people have genetic defects in that some of them can be very severe, they can be life-threatening, they can really impact the person very negatively. You can imagine in the longer term, and now of course we're over into the realm of science fiction, And but again, that's that always happens when you look ahead in technology. You would like to have a nanoscale device that could, a system that could be sent into the body that would actually, that would go in there, would read through the DNA inside the cell, and when it finds the mutation that's causing a problem for this person, go ahead and repair that. It, there's no scientific reason, no, no, no law of physics or chemistry or biology that says this can't be done. It's just extraordinarily difficult engineering. But many things we do today were extraordinarily difficult engineering decades ago. So it's simply a matter of saying, all right, we know this is possible in the long term. Let's get going doing the more straightforward ones and learning what we need to learn about how the body interacts with these devices. Because there's going to be a lot of, of learning to do. The body, as we all know, it attacks, it tends to attack foreign objects. That's what our immune system does. That's what it's supposed to do. So if we're sending in these foreign objects, which are our nano devices, our nano systems, Somehow we need to cloak them with something on the outside so that they look like something that belongs inside the body. Otherwise, these things are just simply going to be attacked by the immune system and it would be a bad thing. So clearly there's a huge amount of, of learning needed to be done, but I think these things will happen eventually. It's, it's a matter of time. And these things that we've been talking about are mostly focusing the health care space and longevity. One of the other challenges that I saw was making information technology available to all, what would be the role of nanotechnology in this challenge? Well, I think in this case, we're probably looking at either a fairly simple thing, which would be trying to get the cost of electronics down, but that happens fairly on a fairly regular basis. We all are familiar with Moore's Law, which uh, predicts the rate of decline of uh, pricing for electronics per transistor. Now, of course, somehow or other, our devices still are expensive, and the reason is that more and more transistors are being used. The hardware requirements are for running our current software are going up and up and up. But I think clearly nanotechnology can help us stay on that Moore's Law pathway. And then there's a separate question, which is another way to tackle the issue, in addition to the hardware side, is to say, well, let's look at these folks who can't afford to buy the hardware that they need. Is there a way that nanotechnology could help them with making a better income? or basically improving the, their financial standard of living, which is what is going to enable them to be able to buy the information technology they need. So that's a much broader question. And now we're, we again back into the realm of science fiction where we say, well, 
you know, where is their money going now? What are these things that they need? Are these things that could conceivably be produced by nanotechnology on site in a, in a home-based system? We're all familiar with the 3D printer and how that is slowly moving into usefulness. Now we're starting to envision a home-based, nanotech-based manufacturing device based on, that uses open source designs to produce whatever it is that these folks may need so that their limited cash reserves aren't going out the door and can be redeployed for information technology. So you can see you can tackle that problem in a couple different ways, both get seeing if we can find a way to get the price down on the electronics themselves, but then also seeing if we can raise in a very environmentally friendly way, can we raise the income of the folks who do not have the income to buy the IT in the first place. I see. And... I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier related to the health space where we can use devices and they can go into the human body. But you mentioned there needs to be more testing done. Maybe that we need to put a coating in the device so the body doesn't react against it. This brings up a discussion about how nanotechnology can potentially be abused or misuse, for example, in this case, is just because of the way the body can react to a device. Can you give an overview of some of the misuses of nanotechnology or the potential misuses? The primary one people worry about or should worry about is not um, accidents, but deliberate abuse. We've seen for centuries that when a new technology comes along, no matter what it is, one of the early applications is often in warfare. Even, I think, the canning of food was originally used to facilitate warfare, even though it seems like a very peaceful technology. You would think that this would be a very safe one, but, but even that was, I believe, originally used to facilitate warfare. So, so it's something our species does, is um, when a new technology comes along, one of the earliest applications tends to be military space. So one can imagine nanotech-based weapons, um, as you were saying, if you look at these medical devices and say, well, what if instead of doing positive things, what if these things were programmed to do negative things? Wouldn't this be a problem? And absolutely it would be a problem. You can imagine very targeted weapons, very targeted and small devices that could possibly be programmed based on, say, the DNA of the people that they're landing on. So obviously this is super negative, but it's not fundamentally new in the sense that these types of ideas also arise in, with biotechnology. You know, bioweapons, it's a very real concern. It's an immediate concern right now. So biotech weapons aren't as highly targeted as nanotech could potentially get, but, but they're every bit as lethal. So what we can do is rather than say, well, these nanotech weapon ideas are unique, they're totally new, they're really not. They are advanced versions of what we can already see possible today, biotechnology. So what we can do is, is say, well, let's tackle the problem in the biotech world first. Let's look at bioweapons. Let's figure out what can be done, how do we head these off, what kinds of treaties and inspection regimes and whatnot do we need to make sure that biotech weapons do not get used and ideally aren't even developed, but at least do not get used, and then extend those principles to, to a, the very similar area of, of nanotech-based weapons. So 
from that perspective, it's somewhat comforting in the sense that, well, we have a model and it's an immediate model, so we should already be working on this biotech weapon issue. I think there is some work being done. I think a lot more work, a, a great deal more work needs to be done very quickly. I think not enough is being done is my point here. So rather than worry specifically about nanotech weapons, I would say let's worry and work very hard right now on biotech weapons. Whatever success we have there, we can then extend that and say, all right, here are the inspection regimes that seem to work. Here are the regulations and treaties that we've put in place. How do, let's just extend those to the nanotech space once we've got it working in biotech. But that's an urgent, the biotech's angle is an urgent one and a very serious one. So that's where our attention should be going now. And then we can use all those, all the learning that we do there. Uh, I think it applies pretty directly to the nanotech space as well. Does the Foresight Institute look at these kind of things, ideas for policies? We do. We have, over our history, over 30 years, looked at these kinds of issues. Right at the moment, we are focusing more on promoting beneficial applications. We did a lot of the work earlier on heading off negative applications. So, so that work is already there. It's on our website. It's ready to be reactivated when, when the time comes. So for now, we are, in terms of nanotechnology, we're working on beneficial applications. Um, in the area of artificial intelligence, there we are trying to head off negative uh, scenarios. So our negative scenario planning is happening, but primarily in the AI space right now. Another thing that the Foresight Institute does is create these technology roadmaps. Can you give an overview of what a technology roadmap consists of? When we think of technology roadmaps, the classic one that people tend to think of is the semiconductor industry roadmap. They have probably the most advanced roadmap, and it is very much an industry effort. So what they do is they try to figure out where the different technologies that are being developed, where they're going to be in, say, five years, maybe two to five years, and how can we make sure that the ones we need to work together are all ready at the same time so that we can actually build the systems we want without falling behind because a particular technology isn't, when we, isn't there when we need it. So it's quite detailed, and it's a very serious, fairly well-funded effort. So all of the other areas, whether it's nanotech, AI, biotech, whatever, when we want to do a technology roadmap, we kind of we look to the semiconductor industry for inspiration and for a model of how do you do it. So basically, you have to get all the players in the room and try to envision what's coming. Where will we be in two years, five years, 10 years? and try to get some consensus on that and then say, all right, in order for that to be the case, what are the different parts that need to be ready to accomplish that goal that you're envisioning in two, five, ten years? And who's working on them? And how are they coming along? Do they Are they agreeing that they're going to be on schedule for this date or are they going to be behind? Are they ahead? What's the situation? So you try to lay out a pathway toward where you want to be, Where what are all the pieces, who's doing them, where's the funding coming from, maybe a certain pathway needs more funding in order to stay on track to meet the goals. So that's what technology roadmapping is about. I'm actually curious from your time at the Foresight Institute, which has been around 30 years, more than 30 years, have you looked back at those roadmaps and then 
seeing what actually happened, sort of a seeing if if it was kind of accurate? Yeah, we have. And I would say that like with any planning, um, especially with, with a field like nanotechnology that is so, we're so early, we're still very, very early in the nanotech industry, always your projections are going to be off. So it's like even probably your listeners know that when you make a personal plan, like let's say your career plan, goal in doing that isn't necessarily to be exactly correct in your predictions. It's more to envision a number of different scenarios, try to come up with a plan that works under as many of those as possible, and then aim in the direction you want to go. So it's more of a guide and a a signpost saying, here's the direction we're going. And then what you really should do, rather than do a a 10-year plan and say, all right, we're going to implement this, what really makes sense is to do what the semiconductor industry does with their plans, which is they do a plan, but they meet quite frequently to update it. So rather than do a plan and say, that's the plan, let's all do this, um, they know that if you really want to stay, if you want a plan that, that makes sense, you have to continually revise it. Just as we do our career plans, you know, we might have a new opportunity, we might get promoted, we might get demoted, we might even get fired from our careers, from a job, and then have to say, all right, wow, you know, that's new, that's not, it was not on my plan. How do I either recover from a setback or how do I take advantage of an unexpected opportunity that just came out of nowhere, which is something I'm grappling with right now. You had mentioned before we started the uh, recording that I'm CEO of a stealth company and that really came out of nowhere. So it's, it's an example of you make a plan, whether it's for a nanotech industry or your own career, and the next thing you know, wow, things are different and you need to revise the plan. But that's normal, both for an industry roadmap and a personal career. Before we finish, I wanted to switch gears for a little bit and talk about open source. In 1998, you coined the term open source. Can you give some context on this? Yeah. At the time, and some of your listeners may remember this, the popular term for this type of software was called free software. And what they meant by that was they meant the word free not in the meaning of free as in price, zero price. They meant it in the meaning of free as in freedom. But new people, especially customers that these free software consulting firms were dealing with, customers would hear free software and of course they would think it means free as in price because the source code is free in price. But then in order to get the consulting which they needed, they'd be told, well here's the price and they'd say, wait a minute, I thought this was free software. And then they find out no, and they would feel like they had been fooled. So the name free software, although if you once you understand it, it makes sense, the new people were not understanding it. So a lot of us saw the problem. I was not the only one by far. But the old term was kind of stuck, and there was a feeling that we needed to come up with a new, clearer term. But it just, nobody was really, people weren't coming up with, well, what is it? You know, what's the new term? And this really bugged me because I felt that the whole movement, the free software movement and the budding free software industry were being held back. And this was an important movement. So it bugged me a lot. So I kept thinking about it. And one day, probably in the shower, you know how that works, it occurred to me that open source software as a term would be good enough. And that's how I thought of it. I thought that is a good enough term. It would do the job. It's not perfect, 
but it's a lot clearer than what we're currently using. Let's just switch over. This is good enough. It'll make a difference. And so I floated it around to a few friends, and most of them said yes. One of them, who is a PR guy, public relations guy, and at, who's supposed to know about this kind of thing, he said, no, don't do that. The term open is overused, which was true. But since he was the only one who felt that way, I thought, well, I, think it's, I still think it's good enough. So there's a long story, which we probably don't have time to do on this interview, but it was introduced and it started to spread immediately. And quite soon after that, uh, a vote was taken by some of the leadership of the, of the movement and the nascent industry, and they decided, yes, this is good enough. And they went with a new term. And, and I think it did make a big difference because things really started to pick up after that. And I think in part, it's just because the old term was causing confusion. Yeah, like you said, it ended up adding more clarity in the software space. Exactly. And it has an educational component, too, because one thing the customers needed to learn was what is source code, right? What is source code compared to the code that you actually run on your computer? And that's that's useful. So, yeah, it had a number of benefits. And interestingly, in, um, in Spanish and some other languages, the word they were using, free, they used, like in Spanish, free has two there's two versions of free in spanish there's gratis which means free as in price and libre which means free as in freedom so they called it they used libre in spanish so they didn't need to change it they were fine with libre that's very interesting yeah that's right well christine thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show it's been a real treat talking to you well thank you adina it's uh, been great fun 